This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom, welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Asia Torah in the Old City of Jerusalem overlooking the Temple Mount. Today we're talking about how to become spiritual warriors. And the first thing is to become no one. You have to be nobody. You've got to get rid of your narrative. And, and getting rid of your narrative is not the easiest thing in the world to do, but, but it's really important to get rid of your narrative. narrative. And anyway, it's, it only makes your life better to get rid of your narrative. It only makes your life better. See, if you're no one, there's no one who could be insulted. If there's no one, there's no one who's ugly. There's no one, there's no one who's dumb. Okay, like, if there's no one, there's no one who's uh, incompetent. So, being no one's great. And Moses was known mostly, what character trait was he known for the most? Everyone say it together. Being? Being? No one. No one. And he says it over and over again in the Torah. What are we? And, and you see that Adam, the first man, his, the numerical value of Adam is... remember it's essential sometimes that Adam is the numerical value of 1 plus 4 plus 40 which equals how much? 45 which is the same numerical value as what? You You want to be a what? You want to be a question mark, and you want to treat everything with a what? Like, what is that? What's this all about? And it's just you're just a questioner. Because why? Because you don't know what the world's about, and if you don't ask the word what and what and what and point to every single thing and ask it if it's your mother, you're never going to figure out anything. You got to ask and ask and ask, and you know it makes me insane when people give like doctors or lawyers or you know when they give these people respect by the way I don't mind giving them respect but you give a Talmud Chacham respect because a Talmud Chacham has the equivalent of 50 PhDs it's like oh I'm so happy this guy has spent the last 30 years staring at corneas but like slicha, you know I know people staring at mufflers for 30 years I don't get any respect and so, because this guy stares at corneas, he gets respect. Or this guy, this other guy stares at people's, you know, uh, eyeballs. <laughs> lower intestines. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Anyway, the point is, is that, is that a Tamakhochma Torah scholar has like these massive, massive, like gigantic knowledge base. He has a huge knowledge base and an expertise in the field after field after field after field after field after field. And many of them are even specialized. These people are even specialized. Many of them. The point of that window is so I can invite you in, not just to stare through the window. Bring that third chair up next to your friends, please. So, anyway, but... What we're talking about is getting rid of it all and being that no one. So Moses was that no one, and uh, many other great spiritual leaders were known for being, you know, really having gotten rid of their their <coughs> their ego. And and it's important, especially for Gentiles to hear this. Not that you're Gentiles, but there are plenty of Gentiles watch this. Is no, because once in a while I'll get a comment, get a comment that I'm arrogant. But it's always a Gentile saying so, because they have the wrong definition of arrogance, the wrong definition of humility. The Jewish definition, or the Gentile definition of humility, is that you're nothing. The Jewish definition of humility is that you are awesome, and God made you that way. You're great, and God made you great. Because you're creating the image of God, and God works through you, especially when you're no one, and you can be highly dynamic 
and extremely effective in your life powerfully, but humbly powerful. And and be that, that channel for God to pour through you. And as much as you shine that light, as long as it's God shining his light through you, you are being humble. As much as you shine it, and you may get a lot of accolades when you're shining your light. You may get a lot of money when you're shining your light. You may get, you know, the good stuff tends to come the way of people who shine their light. And you can distinguish someone who shines their light because God's shining through them, between them and people who are who are just trying to charm or impress. So people who are just like attention vampires trying to suck your admiration out of you. You can tell when people are doing that. But the scary thing is is so many of us our our self image I mean, what do you think your self-image is? I mean, the big one or the safe one? Which one? Which self-image are you going with? The big one that God made or the, or the, or the, uh, the safe one that you made? And then you wonder, why do you even keep a self-image around? Why would you keep a self-image around if it's nothing but misery? And self-image makes you miserable. Like, why would you even keep that around? Why would you bother with it? And the answer is a scary answer, and I hate to say the answer, but I'm used to saying scary things. So the scary answer is is because you're scared to death of being known. Because if you were known, it would remind you of a time in your life when you probably felt like a nobody, which is very different than being known. That it probably reminds you of some childhood time where you looked out with those big kid eyes and looked at a world full of people who were all someones and you felt like a nobody because you were a nobody compared to them you were inarticulate, clumsy undeveloped totally incompetent in any particular matter and you knew it and what's weird about it is even the higher IQ, usually the more they knew it. Because you really knew it. Because you were smart and you saw everyone else as someone and you're not. And ever since then, you're just trying to grab at, like, grab at something that would make you look good in the eyes of others as opposed to letting God pour his divine nuclear energy through your body and through your soul and let the divine inspiration shine through you. So no one is no small step here. This is, this is a very important key to having divine inspiration. Now how exactly you get rid of the someone that you are, that's the other question. Is Well, okay, Rabbi, I'm sold. But how? How do I do it? And so I can give you various ways to do it. Some are even legal. (laughs) So one way is to become someone who is a dedicated meditator. Another way is is to put yourself in the line of fire of a seminar leader like myself, but you don't have to come to my seminar. Put yourself in the line of fire of a seminar leader who's going to rip you to shreds. Until, meaning the narrative, not you. <laughs> you, he's going to build. Your narrative, it's going through a shredder. Which is where it belongs. You know, I'm sure you had, God knows what happened to you, you know. I'm sure several therapists have already stamped it. But it's over now. It's not going on anymore. Move on. Stop playing the victim. Start living the world, living the life that God creates. Another way is is illegal in most countries, but obviously uh, the, there are plenty of countries that it's legal to do is to is to take the plant medicines that get rid of your narrative. 
there are plant medicines that became amazingly popular in the U.S. during the 1960s that are excellent at getting rid of your narrative. I mean, it's scary as anything. I mean, it's certainly frightening. But, uh, but you know what? Even people I've heard had the most frightening experiences of all were the most grateful afterwards. Because, I mean, what exactly were they facing if not themselves during those frightening hours? Was it not themselves? It wasn't that there was any other stimulus. But facing your narrative that way is also, it's a pretty intense and courageous thing to do, and obviously, you know, there's questions of legality and stuff. And uh, so what do we mention? Meditation, seminars, plant medicine work. Um, <laughs> you can go through hell. I mean, that, that seems to work for a lot of people, but not everybody. So many people go through hell and just decide to wear it like a, like a badge of honor. Here's Mr. Sufferer. You know, they start to wear it like a, like this is the new person that they, meaning in, their narrative is pretty crushed, but they now wear Sufferer. But that, anyway, but that's the point, is to get to know one. Um, I would mention other things like fasting and stuff, but I don't think it's very good for our generation to be doing these kind of self-deprecating things like fasting and, and speech fasts. Uh, people in India go on 12-day fasts. They now finally have a Jewish one, a kosher Jewish one, here in Israel for a 12-day speech fast. The reason it's kosher is you can pray and you can wear your tefillin. So it's like the kosher version so the only things you say for those 12 days are the minimal prayers inside the prayer book and that's it and then there's many other things that you can do oh another way to get rid of your narrative is to travel like go bump yourself up against the world and, and watch it do its sandpaper ritual yeah it will sand off you know whoever you thought you were means nothing to people when you're in some foreign country. I mean, it just doesn't mean anything. And, of course, you're going to tell everyone the first week who you are. Maybe the second week. But by the third week, you're who cares who I am at this point? You know, let's just meet the... Let's get to know the people in this country I've found myself in. Without having to indoctrinate them in your whole story. But you do that for a couple months... That's what Abraham was told to do. Abraham was told, get out. Get out and go discover something. Go to where no one knows you. And don't tell them who you are either. Okay, enough on no one. Let's, let's, can we move on? <laughs> that was no one, but it really, it really will do the job. Okay, the next thing is to study Torah. And when I say study Torah, I mean the revealed and perhaps even more importantly, the hidden Torah, meaning that's called the Kabbalah. But, the, but to study Torah. You need to study the, the reveal because you just got to know what to do if, if, as a person. You know, you, gotta, you come up to issues, you got to know your stuff. That's not necessarily going to give you Ruach HaKodesh, but when you're grounded in real Torah, then you can start loosening up on the hidden Torah. Like, for example, whoever you've thought God is till today is wrong. Okay, it's dead wrong. Whoever you thought God was, every single one of you, when you made a bracha today, you said Baruch Atah, and then you probably had something in mind. Well, that wasn't God. That was you thinking about God knows what, imposing some concept of God onto God. And that's okay. I'm not, I'm not giving you a hard time. That's okay. But when you study the hidden Torah, so all of a sudden things get much more diffuse very interesting. They say about revealed Torah, like let's say Talmud, if you can't explain it, 
Yeah, don't understand it. For example, raise your hand. You ever been in a Talmud class for a period of time? Anyone studied Talmud here? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. You hear a really good class. You're a really good class. So the whole time you're getting it because it's a good class. So you're like the whole time you're like, and then the class is over. Now you're supposed to review it with your partner, and you notice you're like, like it all made sense ten minutes ago, but now all of a sudden you you can't get the words out because you don't know it yet. You don't know it yet. And if you can't say it, you don't know it. You know what they say about a hidden Torah? If you can say it, you don't know it. When you study the hidden Torah, if you can say it, if you can articulate what it is that you just received, and that's what the word Kabbalah is, is to receive. If you can articulate what you just received, well, you must have missed it. Because there's just not enough words in the world that could ever articulate such an experience as the insights that are achieved through hidden Torah, through Kabbalah. And something happens when you learn that way. What happens is your normal brain, which is hopefully involved in, you know, very clear-cut thinking, and, you know, like I had to navigate my way from surfing this morning to this class, and I needed to think very clearly at times to make it as late as I did because it would have been much later had I not thought more clearly. And had I thought less clearly, I would have really been late, because I had to make a few moves. And that's important to navigate your life, but there's a whole other thinking. And that is called diffuse thinking. And diffuse thinking is the, the way mystics think of things, things that are much more associative, and uh, and you're more relating things and patterns and, and perhaps even numerical values and and stuff like that. And and this is something that that sadly falls short on the intellectual dark web. Those who are into the intellectual dark web, um, all those things is those are really great, but they're always in there. What's the opposite of diffuse thinking? How would you say that? Clear cut thinking. What would you call that? Analytical. Yeah, maybe analytical thinking. Analytical is, that's the term of that part of the brain, by the way. The left brain is called the analytical brain, while the right brain is called the associative brain. So, they, they, unfortunately, in the, when you're studying the dark, when you're, I mean, not everything in the intellectual, life, when you hear Alan Watts on the intellectual dark web, you're going to hear diffuse thinking. That's going to be, you can hear the guy's brilliant. He's clearly a genius and can think analytically. But when he shares a lot of his thoughts, they're coming from a diffuse mind. Now, we're talking about how to achieve divine inspiration. Divine inspiration requires a diffuse thinker. You have to be someone who can utilize the right brain where God has now room to send through you the message. You have to be a right-brained thinker to get the message. And you can develop that part of your brain. I don't know how personally how to do that because I was born really over there more than any other place. I mean, I'm I'm lucky, you know, to just put the right shoe on because the because my analytical thinking. I'm good at analytical thinking, but my nature is is to be in that diffuse mind. I go here naturally, very naturally. So this is studying Torah, and that's getting into the diffuse thinking. Uh, what is part of the what's called the associative brain? And uh, other tricks to that is is to um, get rid of your get rid of your relationship with time um, when you can. You know, obviously that doesn't mean missing appointments or or being irresponsible. But if you can get rid of time, get rid of time. Let's say, for example, it's a Shabbos meal. So let the Shabbos meal stretch into the three, four, five hour range, if possible. Let's say you're going to pray. You know what the Hasidim say about the times of prayer? You know that there's a certain time you're supposed to have said the silent meditation every day. Anyone know what it was today? I prayed near sunrise. But anyone, anyone know what time the Sof Zaman Tefillah was the last time? Let's just say it was 1021. Okay? 1021. So you know what the Hasidim do? Hasidim were into Kabbalah and the hidden Torah. 
What they do is they make sure they got to shul in time to make it by that 1021. But once they get into shul, you know what they do with their watch? They throw it out the window because we're not praying to the clock. Because if you made it on time but you didn't connect, so that's nice, you made it on time, you fulfilled your getting there on time and praying on time, but if you didn't connect, you blew the purpose of creation. Because God only created this world for us to connect to Him. There's no other purpose for this place. It's only for us to connect. Now, if you have, now there's certain people who are so serious about that time that they'll throw out one session. I mean, we pray three times a day. I can throw out one, one prayer session to make the time. And I myself might do that. That's okay. We're praying all the time. We're, we seem to never stop praying at these, you know, three times a day constant prayer. So to throw one out because you just kind of were going to miss the time, not the end of the world. Because a couple hours later, you're going to be at Mincha. And so you can pray Mincha later and, and do that on time, the afternoon service. And, but, but, the, but come Shabbat, come Shabbat, you're going to pray to o'clock on Shabbat. Like, that's your day. I mean, that's not, that's not optional to have a disconnected prayer because you're too busy dotting your I's and crossing your T's. You know, that's, that prayer is not, is not, it's, it's not a throwaway because of the timing. You have to I mean, get yourself to shul in time that you can do what you got to do to connect. But, but stop looking at the clock while you're doing that. That's why you notice Hasidic shuls never have clocks on the eastern wall. And if you see a synagogue with a clock on the eastern wall, find another shul. Yeah, they're praying to the clock. And the, uh, um, by the way, it's not always the case because once in a while you get a uh, gabai of a shul who's, you know, he's the one in charge of absolutely everything. And he's extremely yekish, because yekish gabais are better. Yekish means like German background. They're better gabais anyway, because <coughs> things are more in order. And they, they will often put a clock on the eastern side, at least until I comment and ask them to remove it. But usually they just look at me like, why? Isn't that the most convenient place to see what time it is if we're already facing east? Not going to fight with that guy. Okay, um, so no one, the next was Torah study. And here's one of the really important ones is a mentor, is you need someone with divine inspiration as your primary mentor. Not someone with a lot of information, someone with a lot of inspiration. This is why when you go to um, a more Kabbalistically oriented community, you'll find that there's the mentor, and then there's the posink. They're not the same guy usually. There's the mentor. That's the one guiding everyone to their, to God. And they have that part of the brain highly utilized. They're probably born with it that way usually. And uh, and then there's a posik of the shul, who's in, uh, sorry if I'm using too much Hebrew. The word posik means the halachic. And there goes the Hebrew again. Uh, I'll fix it. But it's the halachic decision maker, which means the uh, adjudicator of Jewish law, like the one who handles details, like, for example, time, you know, and things related to time. So, so the, you know, every community and every synagogue has a posik, but he, these days he's rarely also the, the spiritual leader who's bringing people. To, on the path of Jacob's ladder to climb that ladder. It's usually not the same person. Now, by the way, what's amazing for all of us is it used to be. It used to be one-stop shop. You know how you know that? Do you know how you know it was one-stop shop? Because when you open up a Mishnah, you know what it says in there? It says, Rebbe Meir says this, and Rebbe Shimon says this, and Rebbe Yochanan says this. And you know what happens when you open the Zohar? says Rabbi Meir says this and Rabbi Shimon says this and Rabbi Yochanan says this it's the same people and not only that but it was the same people for thousands of years 
it's only in our lowly generation that people have to be specialized in the way they're specialized today. Now, my dear Rebbe, Rebbe Noach Weinberg Zatzal, who founded this institution that I'm teaching in right now, he didn't like that at all, that people would honor the tzaddik instead of honoring the chacham. Because it's very clear in the Rambam that you honor the chacham. He didn't like that. He did not like that communities honor the tzaddik over the chacham. But the very simple answer is just that as the generations disintegrated, the further we get from Sinai, the lower things go, and, and people had to specialize. And so there's people who are specialized in spirituality, and there's people who are specialized in, you know, the, the great myriads of details of halacha. By the way, I, I hesitate to say great myriads of details when describing the halacha, because which do you think has more information, the Kabbalah or the halacha? Which one has more? Which one? No, Kabbalah has like ten times more. Ten times more. Meaning, if you were going to fill the room here with every piece of halacha from like the floor to the ceiling, which you probably could, and um, you know, with just everything that's ever been written in halacha, you'd have to fill probably ten more rooms up with the other. You're wondering why? Maybe. Well, the answers are very simple. Let's take a halacha like uh, that you have to say Shema twice daily. Okay. You have to say Shema by the morning. You have to say Shema by the night. Now, why? Why? Is why a halacha question? That is not a halacha question. Now, do you think I could probably speak to you for a few hours about why? How long does it take me to tell you what? It would take me some time, because Shema, it requires certain things. you got to know about how do you pronounce the ayin of Shema, and, and uh, can, the letters, can the words touch each other when you say Shema? When you're doing the mitzvah, can, they, can you say Shema Yisrael, or you have to say Shema Yisrael? There's, there's laws. And then there's, of course, the, the times, like you, today, Shema, you had to say Shema today by 9.20. The window shut for Shema at 920. So there are laws there. But what about those windows of time? What are those windows of time? And what why are windows of why are there windows of time? And 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 why is there two Shema's? Why is there a daytime one? Why is there a nighttime one? And what's going on over there with all of that stuff? And 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 why that sentence? Can't we say something else? We have to say that one? Why that one? You understand what's going on? If you answered all these questions, we would be here for hours. For hours. I could probably construct a semester on Shema. I could probably construct a semester of classes on Shema Yisrael. On, only on the first line. So the Kabbalah actually has more detail, much more detail than Jewish law does. And yet it's the number one most neglected part of Jewish study. In, in Can you find a mentor anywhere? Like, does it have to be in Israel or London where I'm from? Can, do they live anywhere? Yeah, you can find them. And there's ways to know you found them, by the way. Yeah, there's ways to know you found them. Uh, some of those ways are... Or they'll they'll probably be uh, unknown to the community. Oh. <laughs> How do you find them? <laughs> Not easy. You gotta pray. Right. You gotta pray to There's find. There's no shortcuts. <laughs> Not a lot of shortcuts, especially once you meet them. You know, you, they get, and be expected to be pushed away, and then you know you're you're hot on the trail. Why would they want to push you away? Just testing your just, uh, testing your will. I test people's will also. I'm not a big Kabbalist, but I test people's will. My my first WhatsApp today was to a person in New York City saying, you're very persistent, you're starting to pass the test. That was my first WhatsApp today. So you got to be persistent. 
Did you know people with this skill? Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's several. There's not a ton of them around, but there's several. I know a few in Israel. Um, there's one in Belgium. I think a lot of the people from England go to Belgium. What's his name? Does anyone remember his name? Anyone Hasidic here? Are you Hasidic? You're not Hasidic. Hasidic. What's the great Rebbe in Belgium? One of these hidden gems is in Belgium. In Antwerp. Um, you don't know who I'm talking about? I'm like, <laughs> I'm really exposing myself that I don't know. Because I'm supposed to know. But, in the States, in the United States, U.S. has a couple of these hidden gems. Couple, not many. These, the the once know the hidden Torah generally will get out of exile before everybody else. Like for example, there was a time about three hundred years ago where many of them said simultaneously in like in remote locations from each other, and they certainly did not have email. But many of them spontaneously said, "Get to to their students, get to Israel. It's, exile's over." Yeah, and the, and in fact, if you my home where I live in the center of Jerusalem, a place called Batibrota, was built by those students, and um, much of the old city also was inhabited by them. And I, I even know people who were born in the old city, um, you know, like like seventy five years ago, before the state of Israel, they were born in the old city, and they speak Arabic because the Jews spoke Yiddish, and the Yiddish speakers spoke Arabic, and they were they were sent here by these Kabbalists. The Vilna Gon sent students. They're the ones who kind of took over the old city in the end. The uh, Baal Shem Tov sent students. The Benish Chai from Iraq, I think, sent students. And and it was all spontaneous. They just realized, what, you know, the exile part of the Roman exile is over, and they sent their students here. So it's a little harder to find them outside of Israel, but they exist. New York's a little sparse. Um, one person in New York who's pretty known, actually, who's one of these people, is um, Rabbi Moshe Weinberger, who lives in um, Woodmere in the five towns of uh, Long Island. He's one of these people. He's not so secret, but he's, uh, I'm sure he's got some kind of secret life going on that that uh, is happening in the wee hours of the morning and stuff. Believe me, he's not sleeping in. But he's an interesting one because not only is he this great Rebbe, but he's a YU like laureate professor. Which is, did you know that? He's a major intellectual in Shiva University, which is pretty interesting. That he's that he's very high up in the academic world, very high up in the Torah world, and also one of these, one of these, you know, mentors. Can women have a rabbi mentor? Or does it have to be there are women actually who have this as well. Uh, there's one in the old city. Yeah, my wife sometimes goes to her meditations. Her name is Yehudit Schneider, and she has a, her organization is called a Still Small Voice. And she's one of these people too. Yeah, but there, I mean, here I am talking about the hidden ones on live feed. <laughs> But I'm not worried about it because even if you know who they are, they're going to test you. What was her name? I mean, you don't just get to go in and sit in the front row. You know, you gotta. There's a pecking order. But um, oh, also one thing you got to know: you got to come in there with like body armor, because sometimes you have these nudniks who follow them around, and they have really sharp elbows, and so you just totally ignore them and keep focused on the person that you're getting the mentoring from, they'll be, the mentor ignores them. And if they could tell you, and sometimes will tell you, just ignore them. Like, ignore these people who are hanging around me. And, you know, stay focused. Uh, there's, uh, the, the one I'm connected to is in Jerusalem. Is uh, His name is Rabbi, Sh- oh, he's not, in Jer- he's in Beitar now. He moved to Beitar. His name is Rabbi Shalom Friedman. He's available on Thursday nights to hear his class or to go there for Shabbos. That's Thursday night class. I haven't been in a while. What am I doing this Thursday night? Oh, boy. I don't even know what I'm doing, but... Hopefully I'm going to the Rebbe. In Beitar. You've been to Rebbe Friedman? 
I never took in Ralph Freeman. No. What kind of mentor am I? Yeah, Rabbi Friedman's one of them. Um, and then uh, there's the option of a Rebbe. The option of a Rebbe is another one. Um, and there's many more, and some are Sephardic, and some are Bitvish, and some are Hasidic, and yeah, you can find them. Okay, moving on. Divine Inspiration. Yeah. So Rabbi Berkowitz also part of the number three. Rabbi Berkowitz actually has he does have a hidden life going on. Oh really? Yeah, and he knows a lot of Kabbalah. Oh really? As well, um, but he I guess he's made some career choices to just be, you know, giving people rabbinic ordination to help save the Jewish people. So he sends. He's just decided many years ago. He's just sending rabbis. I, I have my smichas from him. He's sending rabbis into the world to, uh, you know, help the Jewish people. You know, Kabbalists, these secret Kabbalistic types are, uh, whatever they're doing for the exiles is very hidden. It's not revealed. And someone like Rob Berkowitz, who's high up there, he um, he's chosen to focus his energies in a much more, you know, uh, uh, revealed way, I guess is the right word. And that's to put as many rabbis out there as possible to make a difference for the world. Um, moving on. Divine inspiration is um, so another thing is really important in achieving it is Wilderness. Uh, it's under the word wild. So, is wilderness, and and that is that that you have to spend time outside the realm of of the human, you know, population. You have to spend time out there, and that's called in Hebrew. By no coincidence, that's called midbar, which is the word. Midbar is spelled like this. Maybe a And midbar means desert. Desert has one S or two S? One. Sorry, I don't mean it. It means wilderness. And it also means, midbar also means to speak midabar. In the Midbar, the reason why the word for wilderness and the word for speech are the same word, like the exact same spelling, is because when you go into the wilderness, there's no other influence out there. Nothing's influencing you. And all that's left is your own voice. And that voice of yours now is potentially a vessel for God to speak through you. And and that is generally how how many of the famous people in the Jewish world that had God speaking through them, otherwise known as prophecy, they spent a lot of time in the wilderness. And if you look at Abraham was a shepherd, he spent his time in the wilderness, Isaac spent his time in the wilderness, Jacob spent his time in the wilderness, Moses spent his time in the wilderness, Aaron was a shepherd, he spent his time in the wilderness. Aaron in the end wound up leading the Jewish people, but so he, he wound up in a big position of power, but, but he was ultimately a shepherd in his years. And um, Joseph was a shepherd, and even King David, when he met Goliath, what was he doing over there? He was shepherding. And what we notice is that, is that people who have this greatness have spent time by themselves in the wilderness where no one else is talking and there's another thing that you will not find in the wilderness, and that is institutions. There's no, like, you know, institution of the wilderness. And it's, it's also, it's kind of interesting, the, the wilderness is often uh, horizontal, especially the desert. 
and the ocean's extremely horizontal and it's it's just it's just space there's space there and there's space for yourself and there's patience that that comes and and after a while you can clean out all the influences that you've had you know we are highly influenced people living in our in our metropolises in our communities and with the the, our parents' voices in our heads and our teachers' voices in our heads and the government's voices in our heads and the advertisement voices in our heads and the media's voices in our heads. And it's like, which voice is yours? Where's your voice? The mentors hear God's voice today. What's that? The mentors hear God's voice today. Men? Mentors. Ah, what about the mentors? Do they hear God's voice today? Ah, uh, you know, I can't. I can't answer that. I can't answer that. I, if they did, they wouldn't tell you. And they wouldn't tell me either. I have an interesting phenomenon. Is is why do Christians keep hearing God's voice? Every time I meet a Christian, they're like, "God told me," you know. And I meet Jews who are like, you know, many of them ten times more dedicated than the Christian guy. And not, not always. Sometimes the Christian guy is more dedicated than the Jewish guys. But they, but I meet many Jews ten times more dedicated than these guys, and they never told me what God said. And not only that, I've had a lot of these Christians come and tell me what God told them, and then, and then they be, they discover Judaism, so they like kind of stop being Christian. And they convert to Judaism, and God stops talking to them. I guess, because they never again told me what God said. <laughs> so, can someone here explain to me why it is that Christians are, keep telling me that God told them this, that, and the other, and Jews never say things like that? I think they want to believe that, they, that God is telling them that. I don't know what Could be. I think they want to believe it, and they believe it to the point that they're going to articulate something that they have read or something that they've studied or heard from someone else, and they want to believe that, you know... Maybe they're hearing their thoughts and believing them to be prime directives from God. Does anyone else have... uh, Does anyone know? Yeah, what do you got? They equate their conscience to God. Oh, maybe. Maybe. That's not so far off, by the way. I mean, you wouldn't have a, if there wasn't a God, you wouldn't have a conscience. And if you think about the conscience, the conscience is a voice. And that voice is, you know, talking up a lot. Okay, we're, uh, we're going to wrap this up in a moment. I just, um, just, I just, it reminded me of something about. Yeah. Yeah. It was Purim. It was a really drunk. Lidfak, which is a yeshiva-style person. He was really drunk, and he fell in my arms crying. And he cried and cried and cried and cried. And I held him. I didn't know why he was crying. He was crying and crying and crying. And he said to me that ever since he was a child, he always had God speak to him. I mean, he always felt this relationship with God. That's what he said. God always, I always, I always talk to God, he said. I always talk, this is many years ago, so I'm kind of piecing it back together. He said, I always talk to God ever since I was a child. We had a really close relationship. He says, ever since I found out that Torah was true and became observant, I have lost my connection. There's a fully observant guy who's sobbing, sobbing on my shoulder. I mean, it was soaking through my costume because it was pouring, and I was soaked through. And by the way, it got old after about a half hour, so I was watching the Asia Tour Purim play while letting this guy convulsively sob on my shoulder. I was trying not to laugh at the various things going on in this ridiculous Purim skit going on in Asia Tour, which was happening about 50 feet away from me because I was in the way back when he approached me I was on my way back from getting a, getting some water and anyway he keeps sobbing and sobbing and I'm like oh by the way he's dressed as a chassid 
he's dressed with, he put on fake payas. You know, he's wearing a Hasidic outfit, barred a long coat and everything. And and here he was mourning his loss of connection. I said, I said to him that you can become a Hasid. Become a Hasid. And he starts crying even harder. And I'm like, did I say the wrong thing? I'm so sorry. And he says, no. He says, my wife won't let me. Ah. And he just kept crying. He's a real sweetheart. They're a great couple, that couple. I wonder what happened with that. I never, I never brought it up to him again. After certain things happen on Purim that you don't bring up afterwards, and I just never brought it up to him again. I, now I'm already, his kid keeps calling me to come over for Shabbos, which I have not been able to have him yet, because now he's, they've already got big kids. Uh, anyway, regarding divine inspiration, um, I'd just like to say that it has to be all of our goal. It has to be our goal. It's not for special people. It's for you. You may never achieve it, but you're not, you're not, Absolved from from doing everything you can to achieve it. I only gave four steps. There's more steps, but but you got to do it. Like I I spent you know how much time I spent in the wilderness. I spent six to eight hours a day in the wilderness for twelve years, every single day for twelve years straight. Six to eight hours a day in the wilderness for twelve years straight. Like if I've achieved anything, it was probably from that. You know, like that, that was serious. <laughs> I paid serious dues on the wilderness business. And uh, now, of course, today I'm, I can only do it for like, now it's probably six to eight hours a week, maybe 10 hours a week. I get to be in the wilderness. And I'm a very busy person, but that's not optional. It's not optional to not be in the wilderness. <laughs> that's a non-negotiable. Missing my my hours in the wilderness every week I've never skipped a week I mean I, if I had to skip a week because whatever it was whole moid yeah but I'm saying if I could do it I do it it's a it's a chok velo yavor it's a it's not an option that's not like an extra or some luxury a dedicated Jew spends time in the wilderness and if it's a female she has to be a little careful and uh, because it's a pretty exposed place, and uh, you know, you, you want to go to Harno for something and just take a little walk. You know, there's forest all around Harno, and you just step out into the forest. Doesn't matter. Kids are playing around all the playsets and stuff out there, but there, there's there's places, and and you can be a more courageous woman. I just don't want. I don't want some woman like saying, oh, Rabbi Glazer said disappear into the wilderness and buy honey, you know, and, and, you know, finding herself in trouble. So, the, anyway, but, but this includes the women. Just, I'm just saying, please be cautious. Everyone should be cautious, even the men. And, um, you, you, Anyway, it's, I've said this a million times, but intense spiritual development is not, it's not a luxury. It's why we're here. That's why you came. That's what God put you here for. You're not like some extra in someone else's movie, okay? And, and you're certainly like, if you're one of these like super conventional Jews, you know, you're, you're going to be so busted when you get upstairs. And God's going to be like, what was that? You know, and what are you going to do? Blame your parents or the community, or who are you going to blame? Like you were put here, you were put here only to connect to God. That's the only reason you're here. And how you'll achieve that will be through many relationships, and how you'll achieve that will be through many struggles, and how you'll achieve that will be a lot of suffering. How you'll achieve that will be, God knows what you'll have to go through. Which means that's all part of it, obviously. But the point of it all was to connect. To be a vessel for that connection, and and that that requires serious 
dedication, commitment, and it's going to cost time, and it's going to cost money, and it's going to cost uh, loss of, of sense of self sometimes. But if you want to get anywhere with that, you, sorry, if you want to get anywhere with what you came for, you know, and that's serious. You got to you got to get that. That's not. These are not options. You can't be one of these conventional Jews. And if people would stick their nose up to you being a little unconventional, in let's say you're part of this whole very conventional world, you know the people, the people who say everything was very nice. You know what I'm talking about? How was Shabbos? Very nice. How was the wedding? Very nice. How was lunch? Very nice. What do you think of the new couple? Very nice. You know, if you're part of that world, so then. And they're not going to understand you being one of these spiritual people who's like moved beyond the very nice world. So you do it secretly, that's all. No one needs to know. No one needs to know. It's your private life. You do things on the down low. And it's better on the down low. And there's so many things I'm up to that in my spiritual life I never would share. I wouldn't share with any of you. I don't even share with my wife. I mean, if she asked me, I would. But... You know, there's like, it's you and God. You know, these are you and God things. And and no one needs to know anything about it. And you can come back and people say, where were you? You can say, I can't tell you, but it was very nice. <laughs> Shalom, everybody. Let's go ahead. Um, please uh, do what you should be doing right now, which is subscribe, click, download. I don't even know what you're supposed to do. Share if you're on Facebook. Okay. Um, please put it out there. Attach a link to your Instagram. And uh, please, everyone, join the media club. Uh, media clubs uh, buying equipment. There's fresh equipment right here on this table. So, uh, and we're uh, and we're hiring our first person very shortly. So, please join the media club and help us get the word out. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.